Welcome to Limud Moment, a podcast from Limud, New York. Limud, New York celebrates Jewish life and learning in all its diversity by bringing together Jews of all backgrounds and all ages. Today we're learning with Zema Yure. This session, titled Why Abraham Killed Isaac, was recorded live at Limud, New York's annual conference in February 2017. It was one of more than 300 program sessions on dozens of topics, from the scholarly to the musical to just plain fun. Let's listen. So the title of this lecture is Why Did Abraham Kill Isaac? I feel that I should offer a trigger warning as is the custom in colleges these days. This is uh, a lecture that will be employing tools of biblical criticism um, and uh, you know it's epicorus-ish but it is uh, uh, it is firmly rooted in uh, rabbinic exegesis as well so there is that part of it um, but um, some people have problems with that, um, and I want to acknowledge that and uh, let people know that I will be using those methodologies um, off the bat. I mean, it's probably implicit in the title of the lecture to some degree, Why Did Abraham Kill Isaac? Since Abraham did not kill Isaac, according to the canonical text of Genesis 22. Um, okay, so I'll start my lecture by addressing, um, did Abraham kill Isaac? Um, rather than why did Abraham kill Isaac. Uh, so, uh, there seems to have been a version of the story uh, uh, circulating fairly early uh, uh, that implies this. Uh, we know Shalom, Shalom Spiegel wrote a book about this called The Last Trial. He tried to trace uh, rabbinic tradi- uh, early, the earliest rabbinic traditions about uh, about uh, a storyline in which Isaac was actually sacrificed, uh, and he uh, he traces it to before the Tanaitic period. The Tanaitic period begins uh, uh, in the uh, late first, uh, early second century, um, and continues till 200, 230. Um, uh, I I I can th- I think we can push it back even further. We I think the uh, story of the Passion uh, of Christ, the, uh, the crucifixion, is uh, uh, a retelling of the story of Akira Yitzchak. Uh, I, um, and uh, this, this story, why, uh, why Abraham killed Isaac, or, why it, or the binding of Isaac, continues to be simply the most uh, written about, uh, retold story uh, in the Bible. Um, Maybe there are a few competitors, such as the creation story, but it is uh, it does occupy a very central place. Uh, so um, it is difficult to be creative about about this because uh, seemingly, uh, why did Abraham kill Isaac? Uh, you know, you know, every answer has been already offered. Yes. Sure, in uh, in uh, Mesopotamia and such, yeah. Are there any such similar stories in other parallel literature? I, uh, I am. There, there are stories that have elements of that. There's not this the this story and the, the way it's constructed. I think is fairly unique uh, until this period. Then there are a lot of different stories that take this <laughs> as a as a starting point. Um, I believe so. Uh, just so uh, you get a sense of how this tradition existed earlier on, I in the first part of the handout you see 
I, I quote um, two uh, short midrashim, uh, short uh, rabbinic sayings about the uh, about uh, that tradition. Um, so the second one is Isaac said to him to Abraham, Father, have no fears. May it be his will that one quarter of my blood serve as an atonement for all of Israel. Um, and then, uh, also based on the Midrash, though this is in the Heidenheim Machzor, um, O oh, uh, do thou regard the ashes of Father Isaac heaped upon the altar and deal with thy children in accordance with the mercy attributes. So you uh, get a sense, you know, the Isaac's ashes were, were something that uh, you hear quite a bit about in rabbinic tradition. So... This, uh, where did this come from? Um, rabbinic traditions usually have triggers in the biblical text. They're, they don't come yesh me'ayin, ex nihilo. They come from somewhere. Um, so uh, the, the, the place to look, obviously, is uh, in chapter 22 in the book of Genesis. Um, so without further ado, um, I ask you to turn the page um, and... Um, We'll look at a second at the story. I'll just give a recap, and then I'll discuss some of the triggers that uh, brought uh, this reading forward. Um, so, uh, God commands Abraham to take his his only son um, uh, Isaac to the mountain of Moriah, uh, to the to the land of Moriah, and sacrifice him on one of the mountains. Uh, Abraham complies. He takes Isaac. Uh, and two servants, and they walk for three days, and arriving there, um, and then Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain, binds him. Um, the, an angel calls out and says, "Now I know that you um, fear God. You don't have to sacrifice your son." Um, and then he sacrifices a ram instead, um, and God blesses him. That's a recap of the story. Pachot um, yoter. So, what what triggers led? Uh, textual triggers, because they always are, uh, led the, uh, to the version of, a version of the story in which Isaac was uh, was sacrificed. Isaac was burnt. Um, uh, we, uh, how did the ideas of the ashes of Isaac come to be? Uh, so, uh, I think the uh, most important trigger is verse nineteen. You, you have it there in your head. Uh, so Abraham returned to his young bed, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. Abraham lived in Beersheba. So why is that a trigger? Isaac's not mentioned, Isaac's not mentioned right. Uh, and this is especially a trick. It, it really is a, a very good textual cue because in verses 6 and 8, it emphasizes that Abraham and Isaac went together. It says it twice, right, to, to make sure that, that uh, we got the point, meaning... So when he, you know, Abraham and Isaac go together, and then Abraham returns uh, alone, you have to ask, well, uh, why? Yes. I'm sorry that I'm dense, but can no. you please tell me what a trigger is? Uh, just, uh, it's an impetus for a catalyst for, for, for the origin of a particular tradition. Yeah, so that's what I mean by, yeah, don't worry, don't, don't, uh, uh, please ask any question you like. Yes. Yeah, I will. I will get to that very, very shortly. <laughs> I, uh, the, there's a reason why I have the canonical text of the Colonel over there. That, um, I mean, I, I, the by Abraham that they will, they will both come back. Yeah. Yeah, he does. Yeah, but uh, um, 
Certainly, I'm not uh, right now. I'm not trying to point to, uh, to the story. Uh, I'm not trying to actually argue that the story says that right now. I'm pointing to the to first to the catalyst, to the textual triggers that may have led to such a tradition, right? Because midrash is not bound, rabbinical exegesis is not necessarily bound by the set rules of uh, pshat. That this is what it says in the text. They like to uh, take you know uh, look at things, um, uh, atomize the text, and then take a particular uh, verse or a particular group of verses that concentrate on them and see what are those ramifications. So I'm not saying, yes, you're absolutely right. He did promise it. I'm not, I, I'm not denying that. Uh, anyway, uh, do you think that there are any other textual uh, triggers over here, textual catalysts for that? Um, I mean, definitely what, uh, verse 19 is the, uh, is the main one. Verse 12 says Yes, that is true. Red, again, if one atomizes the text, red without the, con- the context of the rest of the story, uh, you have not withheld your son. The simple meaning of those words is you have not withheld your son. You have sacrificed him. Right? So, yes, that is probably the other major textual trigger. Well, in terms of ashes, and you have several references to burnt offerings. So uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. The uh, d- definitely we're talking here about an olas type sacrifice, a, bur- a burnt offering, and um, yes. Um, so we know that uh, sacrifice of children existed in ancient Israel. Uh, that is uh, pretty clear. Uh, just give you a small selection of the text that uh, lead one to this conclusion. Um, there, uh, the. There's a few verses in the book of Micha, Micah, which uh, ask, shall I give my firstborn as a sin offering? Um, shall I offer, uh, shall, shall I sacrifice him uh, for, uh, for any uh, iniquity that I, that I do? Um, and so, obviously, that was an, an option that was considered. Um, so the answer there, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is, in, my, in the book of Micah, no, you should not. Um, so there's clearly a, a discussion about this in ancient Israel. Um, then in, um, in the second part of the book of Isaiah, um, six, chapter 60-61, I can't, I can't remember the exact chapter, there, uh, we talk about um, uh, those who uh, sacrifice children Upon uh, in the uh, in the streams, uh, and that's you know something very bad. This is happening in ancient Israel. Um, yes. Sorry, is Israelites who are doing it. Yes, Israelites are doing pagan this. Oh, pagan neighbors are also do, doing it. Probably more than the Israelites. Because I mean, I think the pagan neighbors are condemned. Yeah, yeah, of course. In the Book of Leviticus, uh, they are condemned for doing these kinds of things. Yeah, uh, yeah. The Israelites also did it. The Israelites also, it, it's fairly clear that the Israelites also did it. When, uh, when uh, Deutero-Isaiah, when that second part of Isaiah talks about uh, those who sacrifice children uh, in the streams, uh, it's pretty evident that he's talking about the Israelites. <laughs> Meaning, yes, it's almost exclusively seen as negative, but you don't talk about it, you, you don't bring it up without something having been there. Meaning it's, it existed. Now, a, uh, another group of verses that there's a discussion about actually is in the book of Exodus, in, uh, the Parshat Bishvatib, in chapter 22, uh, 
when uh, it talks about giving uh, your firstborn to God, and then it says, and you shall do the same thing to your cattle. And so some people interpret that as um, uh, what you do to cattle, uh, when you offer them to God, you sacrifice them, and thus what, what that, the previous verse meant is that you sacrifice children as well. There's a discussion of whether it means that or not. That is in the biblical, in the biblical lockout. Uh, definitely, later interpreters did not see it in that way. Yes? Can I ask you a question? Sure, of course. Do you have any thoughts on why God commands uh, Abraham to take the sun up the mountain, but it's an angel that tells him not to do it? And why didn't God tell him that? Yeah, um... You don't, you know, I just... Uh, not, not, not particularly. Um, angels uh, are doers of God, God's will. Um, I, a lot of times, if we're talking, I've said that I will use tools of biblical criticism. A lot of times, the idea of an angel, Malach, uh, the word angel is all, is a very common addition. We see this in manuscripts, uh, comparing just manuscripts of the Septuagint to the Masoretic texts. Often, you see. Uh, angels uh, in, this, in the Septuagint where you don't find them in the Masoretic text, uh, in the Hebrew, and vice versa. So, it, uh, you know, um, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, what, the, what, what, adding, what adding an angel or having an angel instead of God uh, does is uh, provide some distance uh, from the action. Uh, so well, why that is needed is, a, is an interesting uh uh, it's an interesting discussion. Um, so, those are the textual cues. Um, biblical critics, um, and I'm definitely not the first, have suggested that those textual cues imply that there actually existed a story in which Abraham sacrificed his son. Um, and um, what you see here in the kernel is my attempt to isolate that story. I believe that that story is pretty much all there. Um, there, but you know, um, there might be a few words uh, have it take uh, take it out, but it's mostly there. Uh, and um, definitely, uh, the most famous among those people is Richard Elliot Friedman, who suggests this is a possibility. Uh, in, uh, he, uh, the author of Who Wrote the Bible. Uh, so, so the highlighted text and non-highlighted texts are two different sources that have been melded and you're just Well, the, them. yeah, so the highlight, the, uh, yeah, the, it's, um, uh, the first text is the canonical, is the, all, is the whole text, and the unhighlighted text, unhighlighted text is the addition to the text, uh, saving Isaac. So there is the, because there's clearly, in the canonical text, he clearly is not sacrificed. So what, what happens is, a later source, uh, in my eyes, the source that like to use the name uh, the Tetragrammaton, uh, Adonai, um, added uh, a number of verses in order to save Isaac and create a uh, a, uh, a chain. The and the highlighted uh, the highlighted text represents the uh, source that like to use the name Elohim or the Elohistic source. Uh, okay, so. Um, I'm not, uh, I mean, I'm, you know, there, there's some more nitty-gritty that I could go into in, in uh, trying to uh, explain how, how I, I come to this uh, reconstruction, but I have been, I've given you the basic tools to understand where, 
the reasons for it. The reasons for it are the textual triggers, especially verse 19, where Abraham returns alone. Right? So, um, anybody who, I'm, I mean, I've written a fair deal about this. So, anybody who wants to actually go into the real nitty gritty of the biblical critical arguments is very welcome to on any number of things that I wrote. Yes? So, I could see two options the way you set things up. Is that you have the Masoretic text, which has sort of two stories. Don't exactly match, so they leave some some little ambiguities that trigger a new midrashic tradition. Mm-hmm. Or I could envision that you have an older traditional text that's where Isaac died, and those midrashim are reflections of that older tradition. Yeah, oh, the midrashim are well. There, yeah. Uh, I mean, you could see it in that way as well. Although um, it's hard to trace then the the line uh, in that second scenario that you described, meaning, like, I'm missing, and I, like, would, how would that text have been, that earlier text have been available to somebody writing a Midrash? It's like, it's uh, 700 years later, I'm probably, yeah. I'm, I'm uh-huh. positive, I'm okay, asking. yeah. So I, w- what I think is that uh, at the time of the writing of the Midrash, they were working from the canonical text, and they uh, looked they at, these yeah, they noticed, especially verse 19, um, they noticed that, and it's a story that has a lot of resonance because a story in which Abraham does sacrifice Isaac is a story in which uh, Abraham makes the ultimate sacrifice. Here he was about to make the ultimate sacrifice. Abraham making the ultimate sacrifice makes it uh, a, a deeply resonant and a disturbing story, but nonetheless resonant. Uh, the uh, no, I'm talking. Oh, this this text is the is, the midrashim are um, are earlier midrashim, definitely like Tanaitic midrashim. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, um, people taking Isaac as a model did this in the Crusades. They, they yeah. Under times of great duress, they invoked Abraham as a model and and killed their children so that they wouldn't uh, uh, they wouldn't um, uh, uh, it did happen. No, no, of course it's not the normal time. But they but but this uh, but but this this idea that Abraham made the ultimate sacrifice, you see it resonating enough that it's used employed in different contexts afterwards. They weren't killing their children. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Of course, it's a yeah, invoking something and and comparing it are two different things. I don't. I'm not saying that it's the same, uh, not in any uh, not in any shape, way, shape, I, I or form. Eliezer and Ishmael in the midrash. Yeah. 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 Definitely. They're. they're well, how else are you going to get the child up to the, you know, if you tell, uh, hey, Isaac, I'm about to sacrifice you, um, Isaac's not coming up the mountain. I mean, you know, I, we can laugh a little bit about it, about it but really, that, that would really destroy textual logic if we, you know, if uh, you was telling him. Um, and it's, and right now, it's a story, you know, later manifestations of this tradition, uh, such as it is in the Quran and elsewhere, uh, uh, Isaac is also a hero. 
meaning Isaac is consenting to be sacrificed, right? It's not just Abraham. Thirty-seven, according to the Midrash, yes. Um, and and then because Rebe- Rebecca was born right afterwards, and then she was three when uh, uh, when um, she went to uh, to um, Isaac when she married Isaac. Um, yeah, three years in a day, or three years and not a day. Um, anyway, so that is the uh, that was the first part of this lecture was to talk about whether Abraham killed Isaac. Um, now I could I could show I could show um, that we see you know one could ask well you're speaking about chapter twenty two uh, um, and not about the rest of the book of Genesis where Isaac does exist. Um, and, well, this would be a subject for a much longer discussion of, you know, uh, I could show that in this earlier strand, Isaac did not exist later on. And the story of how Israel originated began with, actually, with Jacob. Abraham, in this version of the story, is, performs another function. And that's the function I'm going to talk about now, because I'm going to try to explain why Abraham sacrificed Isaac. Um, why, why uh, beyond God telling him to go sacrifice Isaac, because uh, there is the concept of free will. Abraham could have said, no way. And therein lies my chiddish, because uh, my, my innovation, because really, you know, uh, positing that there's a tradition that Abraham sacrificed Isaac is nothing really new, but it does require some explanation. Um, Anyway, so where where does the story uh, where does the story of explaining why Abraham would sacrifice Isaac uh, begin? Um, so I think it begins uh, in chapter twenty of the book of Genesis. Um, but really, before we do chapter twenty, we have to look at the precursor to chapter twenty, and that's chapter twelve in the book of Genesis. Chapter 20 and chapter 12 are part of a, uh, um, an ancestress in danger tradition, um, meaning uh, uh, they, they, they're basically the same story with a few differences, which are important. Um, so in, Gen- in Genesis 12, uh, Sarah and Abraham go down to Egypt. I, they're, uh, um, it, is, it exists here, at least part of it exists uh, in, on your... Uh, sheet over here uh, under the heading were, were there sexual relations um, Genesis twelve fourteen to twelve nineteen so Abraham goes down to Egypt because of famine um, Pharaoh sees uh, Sarah uh, he uh, she's very beautiful he likes what he sees he takes her into his house and then offers uh, Abraham uh, or grants Abraham many many gifts. Um, and then um, God smites uh, Pharaoh um, with uh, plagues, and uh, he uh, and you know Pharaoh says, you know, why did you do this to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? And he sends uh, Abraham off. Uh, so that's the that's the story in Genesis 12, and in Genesis 20, there's a very similar story. Now, one of the central questions that uh, interests me, and, and also other uh, commentators and exegetes, is were, were there sexual relations between Sarah and the monarch? The implication in the text is that there were, meaning she goes into his house and Abraham receives, uh, 
receives the reward, a very, very substantial reward, um, meaning that uh, Pharaoh was satisfied with what he, uh, with what he received. Um, now, I'm not definitely not the only one who's thought that. Uh, if we look at, say, uh, uh, Rashi, uh, what, what, what Rashi says about this is that um, Pharaoh had shechin, one a, a, a an ailment that would have prevented him from engaging in sexual relations with Sarah. So basically, you know, telling us n no, Sarah did not, and Pharaoh did not have sexual relations. Um, so you know, that's a one could say, well, that is just like a prurient a. Uh, uh, salacious type of interest in the text. I mean, because ultimately, uh, whether Sarah and Abraham, whether Sarah and Pharaoh had sexual relations, doesn't really matter to the to the continuation of the story, since Sarah is barren, right? So Sarah, um, if she had or didn't have sexual relations, nothing would have come of it, um, according because we know uh, from Genesis 11, uh, where Sarah's first Sarai is first mentioned. Uh, that uh, that she was barren, um, and then we and then we learn that afterwards uh, in uh, in Genesis 15 and uh, elsewhere. Um, but uh, in the next version version of the story, in chapter 20, whether Sarah and the monarch have sexual relations is actually very very critical. Why is it very critical? Because in chapter 21, Isaac is born. So we want to make sure that the, the line of paternity is the right one, is that Abraham uh, gave birth to Isaac. And so the Midrash picks up on this. Um, and uh, I have here, uh, under the heading Isaac's paternity in the Midrash, um, so the, this is a Midrash on uh, 2519. These are the gener generations of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac. For people would have said that Isaac was the son of Avimelech, Thus the Holy One, blessed be he, made Isaac's face similar to Abraham's, so that it would be known that Isaac was Abraham's son and not Avimelech's son. For this reason it says, Abraham begat Isaac. And everyone that, Isaac would see, uh, everyone that would see Isaac would say, He is surely the son of Abraham, since Abraham begat Isaac. Yeah, so it was clearly a concern. Um, and, and why? Because if the same uh, sequence uh, occurred, then she was in Avimelech's house. And so... Uh, there would be reason to suppose, especially since there was a failure to uh, to produce uh, children, right? Uh, um, you know, mostly you know, there uh, there is uh, you know there's of course um, Ishmael, uh, but you know a general failure that could be attributed to Abraham himself, and so the fact that she was with another man could imply that uh, Sarah that uh, Isaac was Abimelech's son. So, uh, of course, um, this, is, this concern, I think, is apparent also in the canonical text of the Torah. Um, if we look, uh, turn to uh, Genesis 21 on, uh, on the next page of your handout. Um, I'll just show you how many times in Genesis 21 it emphasizes that, Abraham, that uh, Isaac was Abraham's son. Abraham called his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to, bore to him, Isaac. Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight years old, as God commanded him, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. That's many times. And that, those are not the only times, but though I just gave you the most concentrated. Uh, so it's obvious that there is concern over paternity. 
Otherwise, there wouldn't be such emphasis. You don't emphasize something that much without a reason. Um, because in general, the biblical text is, uh, is a terse. Um, not always, but in general. Um, and so there, the, the reason for this type of repetition should, uh, should be uh, explained. Um, okay, so, but, but if you look at the canonical text of Genesis 21, Abimelech and Sarah do not sleep together. It says so very, very explicitly. In verse 4, it says, Now Abimelech had not come near her. You know, um, he said, Lord, will you kill even a righteous man? Didn't he tell me she is my sister? She even, she, even she herself said he is my brother. Um, in the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands have I done this. God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that, it is, that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. All, and I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not allow you to touch her. You see, there's a lot of emphasis that there was no cohabitation. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately for my sake, I believe that those verses were in addition to the text. Why? There are a number of reasons. Um, the first is such dialogues do not occur in dreams in the Hebrew Bible. Usually in dreams... All, the vast majority of times, there's maybe one other time in the Hebrew Bible where there's a dialogue of this kind of, this nature in a dream. Usually it's God imparting something in a dream. Here it's a back and forth. Um, so that is the main thing. This is, this is not sui generis, but close, you know, not, not unique, but close to being unique. Um, also, um, other reasons, uh, there are textual cues for, for this. Um, I'll introduce you to a concept that you're welcome to remember or forget. It's called the resumptive repetition. It's used often in, uh, in biblical scholarship. It means that when there has been an aside in the telling of a story, you retell a certain portion of the earlier, uh, of the earlier line. And such, a, such an aside exists over here. Um, yes, uh, so... Um, yeah. It says, uh, in verse 3, it says, But God came to, came to Avimelech in a dream. And then in verse, uh, in verse 6, we said, uh, we, we have, God said to him in the dream. We are being forced, there's a reminder here that we're in a dream context. As it becomes unclear that we're in a dream. Meaning it, it's pointing to the uniqueness, to the difficulty of, uh, of this uh, interaction in the text. Um, there are a number of other textual reasons that I can point to, but um, uh, we, the, the, uh, the gist is that I believe that these verses were an addition to the text, and in uh, the version that I isolate, uh, verse 3 is followed by verse 7. So, um, but God came to Abimelech in the dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman who have you, you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, to take a woman in biblically generally means sexual relations. Um, now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. If you do not restore, don't restore her, know for sure that you will die, you and all who are yours. So, that, that's a, that is a more typical dream revelation in the Hebrew Bible. It's God... In, Parting a warning. This type of uh, warning notice occurs on a number of occasions. Probably, maybe most comparable is the warning that uh, that God gives to Lavan uh, when he's about to meet Jacob after he pursues him. Um, anyway.
You're listening to Limud Moment, a podcast from Limud, New York. If you're enjoying what you're learning, please visit our website for more resources and to find out about upcoming events. Go to limudny.org. That's L-I-M-M-U-D-N-Y.org. And now, back to Zema Yure. Yes, you are absolutely correct. I have not talked about theories of composition. Um, I am not a proponent of the documentary hypothesis. I uh, adhere to a different model. It's an accretional model in which um, there's a base text, which I, as you can tell, call the kernel, um, and which has, has, is added to uh, in various generations to make the text, the storyline, more relevant to each successive audience. This is a... Okay, it's actually pretty complex now. It's very interesting now to be a, a Pentateuchal a Torah scholar. In the United States, the documentary hypothesis is, uh, is still uh, the one that's generally adhered to, though less and less. Outside of the United States, it has lost. Um, outside of North America, it is no longer the consensus. So you're talking about in Europe or in Israel? In Europe, in Israel, elsewhere. Um, it is not, there, it's not even... Um, I would say that... Um, the accretional models, redactional models, are, are ones that are more popular. There's not one redactional, accretional model that people have uh, seized onto, but I would say that uh, in general, um, that is, that, that is uh, you know, summing it up. It's still, there are, uh, you know, a number, I would say three or four very important documentary scholars in the United States uh, uh, working today, but they're I think right now, even in North, in North America, they represent a minority. And they still use the same kind of clues, though, the accretion model in terms of... Yeah, God yeah, we're, uh, the, ba- the basis of this, uh, the, the basis of biblical criticism remains right. the same. You know, the textual, the fractures, the difficulties, repetitions, those things are all things that we, different, uh, all, all the models use to varying degrees. Um, wh- what the discussion is, is about... Is what, how you whether a textual fracture is a, uh, is important enough or strong enough to imply multiple authorship. That's where the discussion, where various theories disagree in general. The documentary hypothesis was very conservative uh, in that it posited only um, only you know five authors, um, but uh, but uh, accretional models. Some of them are conservative, like my own. Some of them are. Some of them are, you know, posit 40 authors, um, like some of my teachers at Hebrew University. Uh, but in general, um, there's a lot of variation. There's no, people have not settled uh, on a what, what accretional model. There's, there's schools of thought. Uh, I represent one uh, school of thought with a number of other people. Uh, anyway, so yes, that was a brief uh, interlude about uh, where biblical criticism is today. Uh, so it is actually, the uh, uh, documentary hypothesis, hypothesis had a stranglehold of biblical scholarship until the mid-70s. Uh, then it lost, lost its stranglehold and is continuing to lose ground today. In the past 40 years, it's, uh, there hasn't been a real renaissance of, uh, of the documentary hypothesis. It's uh, lost adherence. What? What is it? Okay. Uh, sure, I, I was addressing a question uh, about, you know, and assuming knowledge, um, and now I'll... The documentary hypothesis is, uh, is the theory by uh, which posits 
three or four different uh, authors uh, who had uh, independent traditions, um, independent storylines, um, and were uh, and were um, uh, sewn together by a series of re redactors, uh, uh, which who composed the Torah as we have it today. Which at which point that happened? So there's a, obviously a fair deal of disagreement about when this happened, but it um, it started to happen in the first temple period. Um, uh, you know whether it's uh, whether it continued much afterwards is a subject for debate. The more conservative models place it earlier. The less conservative models place it later. Uh, if you, if you if a plurality generally agrees on the seventh eighth century is as the you know as the uh, the real beginning of the process, but uh, yeah, more conservative scholars uh, push it up to the ninth, tenth centuries uh, BCE. Yeah. No, not much earlier than the monarchy, the United Monarchy. Uh, not much uh, earlier than deposited David and Solomonic raids. That is like generally when, uh, you know, the earliest that people will uh, talk about uh, the Torah being composed. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I would not. I would not pass it. <laughs> no, I would. I would quickly point to uh, you know discrepancies. You know, you, you just have to take chapters one and two of Genesis to point it point it out. Yeah. And this and this alternate model also has the same timeline. Um. Well, again, there's a, there's even more variation here. Uh, there's uh, there's the uh, hi there's hypercritical people who push it all to the uh, second temple period, uh, and there are more conservative people uh, uh, who, uh, but not generally, you'll find that not very that, that people in, in in modern biblical scholarship don't really like to push it much earlier than the eighth century. Uh, I would say that that's generally the case. Yeah, yeah. That uh, this this process is happening earlier than Ezra. Yeah, yeah. But most people say that there are definitely hypercritical schools that want to push it a lot later. Uh, some of them have political agendas uh, that come with it. So, you know, that's a whole, there's a that's a whole kettle of fish. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay. Uh, so, uh, I just want to uh, keep on track because I have wow, wow, I'm. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, so we have the this version of the story in which uh, Abraham, uh, in which uh, uh, Avimelech may have slept with Sarah, and if that is the case, then uh, the paternity of Isaac is very much in doubt. It's like you know, um, and with that, uh, with the paternity of Isaac being in doubt, then the the whole idea of the lineage, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and history of Israel uh, uh, becomes uh, more uh, more shaky. Um, so, you know, what um, what are the ramifications of uh, of Abraham's uh, action of giving Sarah over to Abimelech? Because we see uh, earlier, chapter twelve, he does this, and um, and uh, God blesses him, but that is kind of you know, at least to a modern reader, 
wow, you're, you headed your wife over to a monarch and you get rewarded for it. And well, what about, you know, protecting your family? What about, you know, what, is that the way people should be treated as, you know, a chattel? Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I'm putting it in, in stark terms in, uh, just to problematize it. Uh, so over here, it, it becomes, uh, in chapter 20, uh, this, it becomes, um, it's put into different terms. It's put into terms of fear, right? It's like Abraham's, uh, you know, um, uh, Abraham says in verse 11, uh, I thought surely the fear of God, there's no fear of God in this place, right? And that's the reason he did it. He didn't trust uh, that, uh, that God would preserve him in this, uh, God would uh, preserve Sarah and him in this place. And so he did this. He, uh, he was duplicitous and handed uh, Sarah over. And so that is one could argue, and I do, that this action is actually betrays a lack of trust in God. Of not, not uh, you know, of handing Sarah, you know, performing... You know, because God, you know, the general view of Yirat Elohim, the fear of God, is acting in a straightforward, non-duplicitous uh, way, and handing Sarah over to a monarch. You know, there's no, it's there's no uh, implication of threat over here. Um, there's, it's, it's just she. He says she's my sister, and he has her over. There's no, it's even more, it's more starkly put than in chapter than in chapter twelve. Uh, so. Uh, so, indeed, you know, Abraham's actions are, 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 you know, merit a lot of consideration. And so I would say that Abraham's sin over here, if we're to put it in those terms, is not fearing God, not tr- or not trusting that God uh, would preserve him. And so then, now we go to the reason uh, Abraham would sacrifice Isaac, to prove that he fears God, right? That, uh, yeah, both of them. It's an act of, uh, it's an, uh, one of the two, but it, it com- becomes an act of, it becomes a, a, an act of, you could view it um, as uh, poetic justice of sorts, or you could, uh, say, you know, view it as Abraham showing that he really fears God. Uh, um, and so then we, uh, if we're to understand the story uh, that way then, you know, uh, this is a story about uh demonstrating uh, what true fearing of God means and what it implies. And so, you know, and, you, and there's a twist to the story, obviously, you know. Uh, um, Abraham, um, you could say this might not be Abraham's son, and so, you know, he's getting rid of the evidence. Uh, it could be read in that way as well. Um, so, you know, that leads uh, one to the bigger question, um, and that is... Um, how are we to understand this in the context of the book of Genesis? And how I think that it should be understood is um, Abraham is not seen as an ancestor according to this strand of writing. He's not seen as an ancestor of the Israelites. What he's seen as is as a role model or as a exemplar of, fear, of the fear of God. Now, this exempl- the idea of this exemplar of the fear of God uh, exists here and also at the end of the Elohistic work. At the end of uh, the Elohistic work ends with the story of uh, Bilab the prophet, uh, where their fear of, you know, obeying uh, God um, 
and wrestling with God is another is a theme that uh, is dealt with there as well. Uh, and so you have that the, those models at either end of the text. And that way, Abraham doesn't really become Abraham is not really a, an Israelite, but he is a, a, a model of sorts. Okay, so now we can talk about this more. Um, so, and one could ask that when ja- where Jacob came from, and I would say Jacob came from Beersheba, meaning, you know, stories have to start somewhere. So that's where it started. That's where the story of Israel's ur- origins start. Uh, I, I do. Um, it's in fact chapter 26, which contains all the Isaac stories, basically, is a repetition of Abraham's stories. It's not, you can look as, from the eyes of a Bible critic, the stories about the wells, the stories, there's another ancestress, a dangerous story there as well. From the, from the eyes of a Bible critic, it is seen as secondary, as, as a borrowing material from, from the Abraham traditions. Yes. And the story of the blessings and all of that. that that's primarily a Jacob story, again, Jacob and Esau's story. Um, so yes, Isaac is mentioned there, but... Um, um, it's not, first of all, it's not part of this, it's not part of the strad, of the Salahistic strad. It's very much part of the uh, Yahavistic uh, strad. But, uh, but also, the main character, characters there are um, um, uh, Jacob and Esau, their rivalry. Yeah. I don't know if this is what you were referring to, but Abraham, the God's blessing to Abraham, and what counts you as and all that. So, how does that fit in with this man who. Because the, if you look, again, it's uh, the names of God is uh, one of the right. main criteria by which uh, uh, bio, earlier generations of Bible critics and some Bible critics today distinguish versions of the text. So all the uh, blessings are uh, are part of the Avistic uh, strand. You can see it. It's always it's always a tetragrammaton that blesses uh, Abraham and the rest of the patriarchs. The 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 the, uh, the, the Avistic strand. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, it's, it's uh, uh, I think, meaning to really um, focus the, uh, you know, it's clear that this is his uh, um, special son, right? It's meaning it focuses our anxiety more, I would say, in, in the narrative. Like it says, this is, this is, it heightens the tension. It's like, uh, which is deservedly. Now, you can see it then somewhat ironically uh, if you are to uh, if you are to look at uh, uh, it according to the earlier version of the story in my eyes Jacob comes from Beersheba. Meaning, where is that? Beersheba is a city. No, no, no. Yeah. Where is that? That's later. Okay. That, that's it. Started the Jacob stories started in chapter twenty-eight. 28. That, that version, yeah, uh, yeah, um, twenty-eight ten. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, stories have to start. Stories always have beginnings. That's why. And so, really, the story of the, the origins of Israel start with Jacob and, the, and then him having uh, uh, twelve children and. 
it's, uh, that that leads to the Israelites. That's after love vibe? After the whole love vibe thing? Uh, no, that's preceding the love vibe. They, he, he goes, uh, 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 Jacob goes down to, uh-huh. to, or goes up rather, right. uh, uh, up north to his, uh, to his relative. And then he uh, takes uh, uh, Rachel and Leah from, from Levan there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bring him down because I'm intending to take. Uh, bring him up because I'm intending to take him down, right? That, 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 yeah, I remember that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And he was asking, what, what, so who, 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 instead of me, who are we going to sacrifice? Yeah, definitely. And then the yeah. wording of Avram turning his head, I forget exactly the words, but you would know, yeah. is, is written a little weird, but it's that he knew before he turned around that he would find the ram to replace his son with. So I'm not really knew, knew everything. That's how we learned it. Yeah, well, that's how you learn it. Definitely. That's how I that's learned how it, too. Written. That's how I, I learned it, too. Yeah, it's a special wording showing that as he was turning, he knew he would find the ram. Um, that I mean that uh, I would say that the Hebrew does not imply that. That's that's kind of like what the rabbis want to see in the text, rather than uh, it's it's based on achar. Vayar uh, Abraham. Um, yeah, it's based it's based on the word achar, which in context is difficult. Um, and really, um, it's I. It should be ayel echad and not ayel achar. Uh, but but um, according to uh, different versions of the text. Um, so uh, I mean, yes, you can read you can read these things. You know, and, and there's reasons for us wanting to read these things because, you know, like you know, people have dealt with this problem. Why did Abraham? Uh, why did God command Abraham to kill Isaac? You know, this is like a very deep and disturbing question for believers. So Kierkegaard, uh, you know, Soren Kierkegaard, a philosopher, wrote Fear and Trembling. This has really, really bothered him. And he doesn't have a good answer for it. Um, and, you know, and so one of the ways to solve it is, no, maybe, you know, uh, you know, uh, um, we're saying to say that God didn't really command him to sacrifice, but the words in Hebrew can't mean, don't really mean anything else. Olah in biblical Hebrew means just that. That's it. That's what it means. And you can say, you can reinterpret it and say, well, it comes from the Shorish, it comes from the root Allah, which doesn't have to mean a, that type of sacrifice. You can, you can make it mean something else. But again, it's, a, it's because, because of how much the rabbis were disturbed by the story, and it's a very disturbing story, when, even when he's not sacrificed. Yeah, but his answer to his son is, God's going to show us the sacrifice. Yeah. He knew. God's going to show him the sacrifice. You, you, could, you could read that as, you know, as an evasion, meaning it's not exactly an untruth. Yeah, that, yeah that's well, not an untruth. Yeah, that because he knew he wasn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, well, I call it. Well, I call it the supplementary supplementary, supplementary so, hypothesis or the creational okay. hypothesis. Yeah. So, because I, I remember, I mean, I know a lot about this. That the idea people always thought, let's get back to the original, original, and then some. Then the, the conclusion was maybe there wasn't. So, in, in this model, was is the idea there was an original text? Yes, that's why I. That's why I, I do. Uh, I do try to isolate what I consider to be the bedrock, the base text of of uh, the Pentateuch of the Torah uh -huh. and of later books. That's part of my, I would say, my shtick in yeah. biblical criticism is to isolate uh, the, what I consider to be the kernel. That's what I, yeah. And, and have you put that together? Yeah, I have. I've, yeah. Written, I've written a fair number of books on okay. this. So and and not, yeah. Um, and definitely, if you want a more, you know, rigorous analysis of the text, I have written a, a, a fairly accessible piece for the Torah.com oh. um, on, on this uh, on uh, why Abraham uh, killed Isaac specifically. The other uh, uh, some of the other places I wrote it, it's less accessible because it's written in you know ac academic jargon and such. Uh, but uh, the Torah in the Torah.com, I wrote it in a fairly accessible way, um, and I fl I, I, I walked uh, through the arguments very carefully and not did not assume uh, previous knowledge. Um, so uh, you know there you can get a recap of, uh, of my arguments. Um, okay, um, I'm happy to uh, delve further into uh, into um, the uh, nitty gritty of the uh, by uh, biblical critical arguments. Um, so you see, the verse nine and verse ten. Uh, you know, Avimelech turns to Abraham twice. Uh, in one, he says. Avimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you have done this thing? And in verse 9 he says, and Avimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? Meaning, it's a, you, there's, there's, you don't need both. There's a repetitiveness. And then you look, uh, in the Hebrew, you look at the specific terms of phrase. Chata'ag uh, dola um, specifically is a term that's used by the Yahvistic J strand uh, and not used by the Elohistic strand. Um, and fear of God is a central concept in the Elohistic strand. So there you. Uh, so that's why verse nine. You know that's one of the one of the reasons why I separate verse nine from verse ten. Um, you know I I could go. I could do the nitty gritty on the other verses as well. Um, in verse twelve uh, and, uh, and is also very interesting. Uh, uh, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is your kindness, which you shall show me everywhere you, that we go. Say of me, he is my brother. So that, uh, there's a, a textual trigger uh, besides. It's like offering another excuse, right? And that, that excuse somewhat begs credulity. Like, it's like, really, she's your sister? How does that make things better? I would say that that makes things worse in a number of disturbing ways, right? So, so it's uh, um, so yes, um, that's part of the reason why verses twelve and thirteen uh, are, are attributed in my model to another author. Uh, anyway, yes, I, I didn't want to like I didn't want to do all the very intensive uh, uh, um, textual critical. Um, uh, arguments here because 
part, part of the reason is because a lot of them involve like uh, looking very closely at the Hebrew text, and I'm doing this in translation. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a little bit more difficult. Yes? Do you have a, an opinion on why did they emphasize that he got up early, saddled his own horse, and he always sleep with his own? Well, what's the purpose of that? What, what oh, I, I don't have an opinion why it's that early, but things are frequently, when you set out for, for important journeys in the Hebrew Bible, they're often done, done, done at the crack of dawn. It's you were talking about the desert, right? This is this is uh, this is Beersheba. It's uh, anybody who's been in Beersheba will know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, why did he? Um, I mean, you could you could you could say that you know uh, Abraham that his servants did saddle his his, own, his horse or his donkey in this case. Uh, and simply the, the text chose to say that he, he did it because his servants are an extension of his will, um, which is, you know, often when the king does something or a, a person higher up in the hierarchy does something in the, in the Hebrew Bible or in any hierarchical model, it's not he who actually does it, it's uh, somebody under him who does it. And so I would say that the same kind of thing could be applicable in the text. Of course, I know... I do know the the rabbinic explanations for for uh, for this. I I'm I'm just not accepting them. <laughs> That's what's implicit over here. Oh uh, yes. Uh, why is it because because of Abraham's eagerness to perform the mitzvah? That's why he did. Or do it. Or there there you go. <laughs> Yeah, God commanded him to do this, and he was so eager to perform it that he went ahead. That he got up early and saddled his own donkey. He didn't want other people to do it for him. This is the rabbinic. That's one of the rabbinic explanations for it. Yeah. Um, in the Pentateuch, it begins in Genesis 20, right over here, um, and ends in Genesis in Numbers 24, with the story of uh, Bilam. One, I believe it was one. I'm very, I'm quite conservative as it comes to, yeah. <laughs> Always ask a Bible critic how many authors they think. Um, I remember my uh, my my teacher Alexander Rofet uh, was asked exactly in this kind. Uh, you know, actually, when I was lecturing about this in, in another lecture, he was asked, "Well, how many people do you think wrote the Torah?" And he said, 40 something." Now, I'm not nearly in that camp. Meaning. I believe that the narrative uh, strands of the first four books, and not including the book of Deuteronomy, because it's mostly not narrative, uh, were composed by uh, five authors. So I, I would say, in terms of supplementarians and people who believe in accretional models, I am on the very conservative side. Have you had an idea how ancient those, when that... I have my dates, but again, yeah. date, date, dating is... Uh, in, when it comes to these kinds of things, is very relative. Meaning, right. it's like what is earlier than and what is later, because we don't have any good dating criteria for these things. Right. 
we can generally say that this kernel, this E, was composed in northern Israel. That means that it cannot have been composed after the destruction of the northern kingdom um, at the end of the 8th century BCE. So it had to have been composed somewhere maybe in the middle of the 8th century BCE. Uh, that's, where, that's where I would generally place it. Also, we have evidence that writing in ancient Israel was really only started to flower in, in the, at the end of the 8th century. So, it was there were definitely oral traditions. Um, you know, try to uh, recover oral state. The oral stages is a you know, it's a, it's a lot of fun, but it's very speculative. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what the what the accretional model, at least my accretional model, posits is that. There was a constant uh, desire to make the story relevant to the new, uh, new uh, an audience in a, in a new setting and in a new generation. Meaning, the way I see it is that there was a northern the, the northern version of the northern versions of traditions were the first ones, and then uh, the northern kingdom the kingdom uh, of Israel was divided between the north and the south. The northern kingdom was a much more powerful and bigger kingdom. And it, but it uh, didn't survive as long. It, uh, it fell at the end of the 8th century. Um, and the, the southern kingdom lasted another 130-some you know, years. Um, and, um, and so I think that the northern traditions were taken down to the south um, and, and um, uh, southernized for, for, the, uh, for the southern audience. And you see definitely that there's a flowering in ancient in, in Judah, and, and just after the fall of the Northern Kingdom, you see more, more and more writings, um, and definitely, and certainly afterwards. So I think that that was one of the main dynamics that was occurring, at least in the early uh, part of the writing of the Hebrew Bible, was Northern traditions were taken down by scribes fleeing uh, or uh, being exiled from the North and coming down to the South. and. Um, Catalyze an intellectual renaissance in the, in the southern kingdom. So you're saying that, that the notion that the five books of the Chumash were not written, were not divine, was, was an idea, um, a later idea? Well, the notion that they were, well, I'm not sure. Um, well, we're, um, I, I, I'm not, I haven't related to the, to the, uh, uh, divinity of the books. Uh, I mean, it's not, uh, you, I'm, all Bible critics have their uh, theological opinions, but it's not, uh, it's like, you know, the texts themselves were written down by human beings, whether they were, whether they were given by, uh, by um, God or not, meaning they're ultimately written down and transmitted by human beings. So that's, those are the questions that uh, interest uh, uh, Bible critics, meaning that process. You know, whether there was divine inspiration uh, by the people who wrote these things is, uh, is, a, is a question uh, that it's, it's, uh, it centers on belief. You know, it's like, do, do you believe that they were divinely inspired? And that's, uh, and that I find to be so, you know, it's, it's a personal question, right? <laughs> I, w I think that right at the uh, right, the people started believing in the, uh, in the divinity, in the divine inspiration of the text from the very beginning. 
I would say that the, pr the person who wrote down uh, the Elohistic text, once people started reading it, believed that uh, we're talking that there was communication, divine inspiration from God right then. You know, I, I think that, that that was part of it in the 8th century and continued. You know, I, the, the idea of divine inspiration, I think, was very early. I don't think that, I don't, it wasn't an atheist who wrote uh, the text, meaning it was somebody who believed in God and, and writing God's name and saying that God said this to, to someone is something serious. And if you say, if you're good, you don't lie about those things, you know, it's, yeah, that would be blasphemous. Well, of course they have an identity. It's just, uh, it's more of a, an oral identity. Yeah, I mean, you see that these things ha happen, I would say, in times of crisis, in, up in times of upheaval, so things will be preserved. Right? There's that notion that, you know, we preserve things to, to, to we rewrite things down to preserve them. Uh, but that's definitely, I feel, one of the governing notions. That's why I say, say these traditions were written down right before the fall of the Northern Kingdom. They were taken down to, to the south. And then, uh, you know, again, there was a flowering of writing contiguous to the exile. And then things tend to happen when you, when you fear, you know, they're going to be lost. That was one of the reasons, to say, for the composition of the Mishnah, at least purportedly. Uh, it's because people feared there was, those traditions were going to be lost. So they wrote them down. Uh, I, I, you know, I do feel that that... Whether there are other impetuses for, for the composition of the biblical text, there may very well be. Um, but I feel, feel that that definitely was one of the motivations, preserving uh, things lest, they, lest the, the tradition be, be lost because of upheaval. Is the Ten Commandments story in your version? Yes, there are, there, but there are not Ten down? Commandments. There's seven. There's seven. Moses breaks the stone. Uh, oh, Moses wow. does break the stones and he burns them into ashes, yes, and he gives them to the Israelites in, Genesis, in Exodus 32. Yes, um, I wrote a piece on the Torah.com on the I Ten Commandments that. as well. <laughs> um, so you can... Uh, you. <laughs> yes, so then, you know, I, I, I like to posit different. I also think that the Jacob only had seven children, uh, according, you know, I like to posit, I like to show... Uh, seven sons, but in this case. Yeah, some of them were, uh, <laughs> some of them were, uh, two, two of them, uh, or three of them were of uh, Pelagish children. Uh, not enough to leave, they were of Pelagish children. It's so interesting that accepts the Pelagish children of Jacob. You notice that they have more people, but they didn't accept the Pelagish of Abraham, or, you know, why they wanted to have a nation, why didn't they accept Well, it's, it's, it's um, I would say that, uh, I mean, at least the way we can look at it in the biblical text is that these are the handmaidens of, uh, of of Rachel and Leah, so they're like uh, like and an extension. Well, that you know originally that was Sarah's uh, motivation. She says, "I will be built for her, Ibadabi Beda, like that she will uh, th that that son would be hers, that Ishmael would be her son." And then there's a confrontation. Uh, you know, the uh, Hagar starts act, acting acting up and like. You know, uh, you know, uh, uh, lording it over Sarah because of um, uh, because that she's pregnant and Sarah is not, and that's when she Sarah makes her life miserable and she runs away. Meaning, originally Ishmael was going to be Sarah's son, right? In, in, uh, in uh, um, Genesis 15, right?
Jerry 60. Yes. It's less important, but you, yeah. Well, we, we, um, this is this is interesting because my second doctorate uh, actually does a lot of New Testament criticism, <laughs> so I can. It was very interesting to, to see how uh, how uh, Christians related to their holy texts um, and Jews. So biblical criticism, uh, um, the way it's done in the, in, the uh, in modern times, is very much uh, something the Protestants started in the 19th century. It has Jewish antecedents as well, uh, such as Ibn Ezra, but it very much originated with Wellhausen. Uh, at least, you know, a lot of the vocabulary I'm using. Um, and then, you know, Jews became very important in biblical criticism later in the 20th century, uh, but still, it was uh, something that catalyzed by, by, by the Christians. You can see that uh, with regard to their own te- the text that they regard as canonical and most important, especially the Pauline letters, for example, um, you know, they find it very, very hard to do criticism of the Pauline letters, meaning to posit multiple authorship of the Pauline letters. And I, who, you know, doing my second doctorate right now, in doing, in looking at the Pauline letters closely, there, there's multiple authorship over there and quite a bit of it. Um, meaning, you see that they, you know, it's a, you know, a bit of a double standard, <laughs> uh, I feel. But it's not, it's not really a double standard because the people who do New Testament criticism do not do, uh, in general, do not do uh, uh, Torah criticism. You know, it's people who, it's different groups of people. There are very few people uh, like me who are, are delving into multiple fields, uh, textual critical fields. Thank you for joining us for the Moon Moment, a podcast from the Moon, New York. Be sure to subscribe to the Moon Moment wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about all of our presenters and programs, and for more learning opportunities without limits, visit our website at limudny.org. That's L-I-M-M-U-D-N-Y dot org. Or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at limudny.